following podcast deals with mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. If you have any information that can help bring Candace home, please come forward to police or you can remain anonymous by reporting to Crime Stoppers. Last time on Deals, Debts, and Death, the disappearance of Candace Ingbeal. You heard my co-host Kelsey speaking with missing persons and major crime investigators at the time Candace went missing. They spoke about the intricacies and challenges of investigating a potential homicide in the drug world. With mass amounts of tips and information coming in, leads in the case were pointing in so many different directions. In episode four, Needle in a Haystack, we take you through some of the major leads that saw investigators climbing through crawl spaces, doing some Saskatoon myth-busting, and searching for what seemed like a needle in a haystack. A lot has been discovered in almost nine years of this investigation, but we still need to find Candace. It's time to get some answers. I'm Julie, and I'll be your host for this episode. Deals, Deaths, and Death continues now. So settle in and let's get to work. Oh yeah, boy, I'm starting to remember this now. Detective Staff Sergeant Doug McNeil is transported back in time as he enters the rundown apartment building in downtown Saskatoon, the last known location of Candace Singbeal. He was a detective sergeant in major crime with the Saskatoon Police Service eight years ago when Candace disappeared. Today, Doug is head of the interpersonal conflict section that oversees the serious assault unit, the missing person unit, the hate crime unit, and victim services. His career at SPS has led Doug away from Candace's case, but in his new role as staff sergeant, he's back on the file and excited about the work ahead. He's also very proud of the investigative work that was completed almost nine years ago. On this day, Doug is giving myself and my co-host, Kelsey, a tour of 228 3rd Avenue South, the Traveler's Block, a historic two-story building dating back to 1912. But as we approach it, we can't help but notice the spaces and alleys around this dingy relic. Behind it is an addition to the building connected only by a small second-floor catwalk. The alley it creates is half the width of a normal alley, making it a very private spot for those who seek the shadows. Exhaust vans from nearby restaurants blow strong odors of deep-fried food. Remnants of foil confetti litter the pavement from a nearby nightclub tucked discreetly to the side. Recycling, grease, and garbage dumpsters emitting their own unique smells lie in the alley that sees constant vehicle and pedestrian traffic. This is our downtown. This, this is where people that have addictions, that have, you know, are struggling with having some type of consistency in their life, they're congregating here right now because there's many services for those people that are here. And, and that's, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, there are services that these people are taking advantage of that, but, and, and using as, as required. The offset of that is, is there's also nooks and crannies and, and a means to sometimes find a warm place to stay. And Traveler's Block is a classic example. 
once you're inside the building, there's a, there's a few places to hide in there, and you can spend a night, you can stay warm. Uh, you know, banks uh, with their, you know, their foyers or their vestibules. Yeah. It's... And just such a mix, like, this alley, I'm, I've seen used needles in here a lot before, and I'm sure you as an officer have seen other things. And then a Range Rover pulls out. So it's just a, a mix of everyone. There's a law office down that alley, and I know exactly where that Range Rover came from. I didn't see who was driving it, but I know, there, I mean, there's affluence down here, but you're right. I mean, you, you nailed it. It's, it is a mix of everything. Walking in this building initially is like, I am blasted with smells and sights and things that, just kind of sights that the, I would say the typical person isn't exposed to. So how would you describe the, like, the physical aspects of this building walking in? It, it, it hits you right away, and just like you said, this is going back to the beginning of Saskatoon. This is pre-electricity. Uh, you can see in the walls, you can see holes through the walls where electricity uh, lights are added afterwards. Uh, you look at the, the railings inside, how authentically, like this is solid wood, this is very old. And I would, I would be comfortable in saying that these are original. I'm sure the carpets are, but I mean the carpets, buildings like this have their own story. I mean, that's the... The interesting thing about it is something this big, downtown in Saskatoon, it's a residence for many, mm -hmm. um, and it's, hi there. The flow of people is constant in the building, as Doug leads Kelsey and I on the tour. Most people offer a quick hello in passing. There's probably many stories to be told here, but one building, or one story, you know, specific to this story, and as a good example is when I contacted the building manager today, say, you know, we wanted to come down here, actually be inside the building, and I told him why, he knew exactly what file was, he was very much aware of it, so this is very much, this building has that story attached to it. How does it smell to you? Well, it has that, it has that old, almost like your grandma's basement kind of smell, you know what I mean by that, where there's a mustiness Musty to it. it. It has that, that smell of like anything but new. I mean, you go into a new house, you smell a new house, you know that smell. This is everything that's opposite of that. All the smells. All the smells that a new place doesn't have. Yes. Yeah, like you smell the restaurants surrounding the area. And yeah. It feels very hot the old in here today. feels very warm and sticky and almost uncomfortable. Yeah. The interesting thing is I haven't been in here since 2015. That's eight years ago. I'd spent a lot of time in here, but coming back immediately, just smelling it, just, it takes me back to what was going through my mind, what I was focusing on, who I wanted to see, what tasks I had every time I came here, whether it was with Neil or with Chris or with Kim and Missing Persons, there was always just being here and smelling it and seeing just the authenticity of how old this place is. It, like, it's a flashback, it hits me pretty hard. The units are small with no bathrooms. Those are communal. Renting a suite will run you about 500 bucks a month, something Candace could not afford. She and her boyfriend had been couch surfing here with some other people. As we head up the stairs, you look at the paint, you look at how things have peeled over the years, all the scuff marks. Everyone has a story, I'm sure. But this, this general area here, uh, one of the rooms that we focused on first is down this way here. You can see the, the mouse traps outside the doors. Could you feel right here where my foot actually I almost felt like my foot was going through right here. Just a very old building. Yeah. 
So this is the room right here where the individuals that were inside woke up that morning and said, where's Candace? But the biggest thing for me is back down the stairs where we just started from, is looking out the glass door across the street to there was the bus stop. And it's where one of the individuals that we interviewed on day, day two said that he had seen her, she was sitting there, and then she had seen some people that she knew, got up, walked away, and that's the last, the last time that anyone that we've interviewed or spoke to said that they saw her. But where she came from before there was this room right here. Another area of the traveler's block that Candace found refuge in was a small closet-like space behind the main floor laundry room. But down this way here will lead us to the laundry room area. You can feel these stairs, the, your feet are almost coming off the edges. The, uh, the platform of the stairs are giving out. Building has seen better days. Thank you. So this is the laundry room area here where we know that there was an interaction uh, a night or two before she had gone missing. Um, you can see this room here, if, if you recall the conversation before, there was a room off the laundry room and the only way that people were getting access to it was believed to be through something over top of the door. And that's the door there. Although there is only one washer and dryer, this laundry room is much larger than your typical shared laundry in most apartments. The high ceilings, maybe 12 feet, still bear what looks like the original detailed crown molding. The walls are a pale yellow, and you can tell that years ago, the concrete floor was painted gray. The transom that Doug described above the door to the small room is also very small. Candace could have wiggled through it after being boosted up by another person to gain access. After Doug pulled the now unlocked door open, a curious resident behind us pokes his head in for a look as well. He's tall with long white hair and on this day is dressed in pajama pants and moccasins. He had held the door open for us to enter the laundry room and patiently waited throughout some of our conversation before firing up the noisy washing machine. He seems half interested in what we're doing as he leans against the machine jiggling loose change you can hear in his pocket. So there were clothes inside this room when we came to do what to to go through the building and search. You could tell she was staying in here. We don't. There, there were clothes that were consistent with something that she may have worn, but we don't know. We can't say for sure that they were hers. Mm -hmm. It uh, the door was almost nailed shut back then. It was it was hard to get open. But we had management get it open for us, but we believe that people were getting in. Some of them may have gone through there and opened the door from the inside. It was a place to stay, a place where you wouldn't be bothered. Inside of the laundry room was a sealed-off elevator shaft. The doors were locked and a metal plate had been screwed to the floor to prevent it from being opened. In the search for Candace, this was one spot Doug literally had to get to the bottom of. I recall them having to take that plate off the floor to actually get in the bottom of the elevator shaft to get those doors open. But then it, that's back in 2015. But the work that the, again, the, the management at the time was very, very good to work with as far as letting us through the whole building. But it was, that was the one tough one to get through was, you know, just let us have a look. We don't know, you know, we have to rule everything out. Mm -hmm. And what did you find down there? There was, there was there's, there's nothing, and there's no way people can get below it, so. It sounds like you left no rock unturned when you were going through this no, building you, anyway. No, you, you can't. It's, 
Um, but it wasn't hard to do because again, the, the building manager at the time, he had access to the whole building. He knew the building residents. He knew the people we were talking about. He recalled seeing them in this room and having to move them out at some point in time because he knew they didn't live here, that they were friends of people that lived here. But it was, he looked back in his records and he recalls uh, who he believed to be Canis and her boyfriend at the time and saying, look, you don't belong here, you gotta go. And it, it all matched up. The search of the traveler's block didn't produce any evidence that led investigators closer to finding Candace, but a lot of tips were ruled out, including a bizarre one. Near the end of summer 2015, police received information that Candace and her boyfriend had accessed tunnels below the streets of Saskatoon. Investigators were told that these tunnels could be accessed through the traveler's block and that Candace might still be down there. The first bit of information that we had, if there were tunnels, they said it was uh, the door across from the laundry room, which is that door there. Here's the door here. You can see how um, I think that pane of glass is just barely holding on. I'm afraid to even touch it. This is the door that was described to be leading to the tunnels. Now the tunnels, we of course have to, any information yet that comes in, you have to corroborate it. You have to say whether, you have to look into it. You have to investigate it and decide whether it's relevant or not. There are no tunnels in the city, but it's the, it's the work that came afterwards to, to say, you know, what we were aware of it, this is what we did, this is what we found out, this is why we don't believe that's the case, but these are the steps that were taken. And it all started here. This door here was screwed shut from the outside. So we had to get the building managers to unscrew all the screws. If you, I think I have a flashlight on my phone. Yeah, what are we seeing? Like this is a tiny this, old, very beat up door. Very, very old beat up door that leads to underground of this building. The brittle antique door looked as though it could fall off its hinges at any moment with one small pane of glass balancing in the window frame, yet it was secured with a padlock. Through the window by the light of Doug's cell phone flashlight, we were able to see inside of the space below the stairs that resembled something similar to a closet. There were exposed pipes on the walls leading down into a dark space at the back of the room. A loose board lay over what looked to be the entry to a crawl space. When you wrap your head around it and you actually get on the other side of that wall, it's just, it's literally open ground below the building where sewer lines or water lines or what have you that had been dug up or, or ran where you could get still some kind of access to, but there's no way a human body could get past it. Fortunately, that is going through my head. Can a body get through this? Or can someone get a body through here? No, there's absolutely no way. Like, it's just, it can't happen. So you've climbed through there? I was through there. There were many days I went back to the office, especially leaving this building, where I, in the days that we were going through everything and I was going through this, climbing into that back room I just showed you. This is where I got the dirtiest, you know, I think I went through a, a couple pairs of pants through that summer where we were looking every nook and cranny where we could. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You got to get your job done and have it come back. And it was June and it was hot. Like I, I remember June 2015, it was beautiful, which was good because we spent our, a lot of our time in the alleys and in the surrounding area, which we can go out to right away when we're done here. But and you never did find any tunnels, hey? There were no tunnels, but there's some good stories that came of that. Investigators even went as far as the city of Saskatoon archives to fact-check the long-believed local myth that there are tunnels below Saskatoon's downtown core. 
As it turns out, there are no tunnels, but old underground easements on the side of buildings below the sidewalks. Still, no Candace. As we head back outside, we're reacquainted with the sights and smells of the alley. So now we're below the, the catwalk. We are below the catwalk. This is an alleyway, again, as I mentioned before, oftentimes when we came back to the building, we were coming to locate people for further interviews. Sometimes we would find them inside the building. Sometimes we would find them here in the laundry room area or just outside here. To confirm that there were no tunnels downtown, uh, we got inside this building, got into the basement, and realized that along this area here, what you don't see, but you see it when you're in the basement of this building, is it also has an encroachment that comes under underneath the alleyway. And there's three of them. As you walk down this way towards 3rd Avenue, big, I would say they're probably at least three feet in diameter, but they're round doors that would lift up. And coal wagons used to come down this alley and drop coal into the basements. And this building had it. There's a few others that have it. Um, but that just goes back to how old these buildings are. As intriguing as the thoughts of tunnels under the streets of Saskatoon are, that tip did not get investigators closer to finding Candace. But something did happen at the Traveler's Block. Something that would lead investigators down a whole new track. So standing here looking this way, this is the video where at some point in the night we had seen someone walking out with a sheet over their shoulder and throwing something into one of these bins. This is where that happened. So my name is Tyson Lavalley. In 2015, I was an investigator with the major crime section. So at the time, I'd already been in the unit since 2013. Inspector Tyson Lavalley, who was a detective sergeant in major crime at the time, was the designated search coordinator in the investigation. He was tasked by lead investigator Aaron Coates, who we heard from in the last episode, with ensuring that all details were approved and in place so different searches could be conducted successfully. When police discovered a concerning piece of surveillance footage that spiked their interest, the search for Candace Singbeal was about to get very large. In the first week of the investigation, we had canvassed and received video from several locations around the Traveler's Block. One of those videos was in the, included um, a view in the back alley behind the Traveler's Block. And at one point during that week, we became aware of a person in the back alley appearing to carry something large in a white sheet um, and throw it into a dumpster. If there was any possibility that Candace was under that sheet, investigators soon realized they're going to have to search a landfill. Yeah, just kind of describe when that picture was taken, what it was like that day. Uh, you know, that day it was a, it was a sunny, sunny, hot day. We're talking June 5th, right? So um, lots of seagulls, uh, many different odors. Um, you know, and you're, like I said, it's an industrial operation. So you've got, you know, big equipment moving around and... Um, what was kind of going through your mind when you walked out there for the first time? Oh, you know, it, what was going through my mind was this is going to be a very hard job if we have to search this landfill. Uh, and my first thoughts were, okay, I need to landmark this. It sounds like a literal hunt for the needle in the haystack. Yeah, yeah, it sure was. 
After researching, assessing, and documenting everything about both the City of Saskatoon landfill and a private landfill just outside the city, Tyson and the team were positive that Candace was not in the city dump. The private landfill had taken steps. They've modernized their, 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 the way they collect garbage so that their trucks are all GPSed. Uh, so I knew who their driver was. I knew the route that he took that day, that when he did it, do his pickup. There's cameras in the dumpster area. So when they collect it and the, and the arms pick up the, the dumpsters and they dump them in, those are, that, that cameras can be viewed. So I knew I could interview the driver because he watches those loads go in. I can confirm with the driver where he dropped it off. And I have a GPS that can confirm where it got dropped off. So I know exactly on that cliff face where he dumped. So that turns something that's the size of a football field to something that's maybe closer to, I don't know, tennis court. This search was one of Tyson's largest tasks in the investigation. World-renowned forensic anthropologist Dr. Ernie Walker agreed to offer his services and expertise. He had experience seeking out and identifying human remains during a 2010 Saskatoon landfill search, and in 2002, he was involved in a massive land search during the high-profile Robert Picton case out of Port Coquitlam, B.C. Cadaver dog teams from the Calgary Police Service were acquired to help. A command post from the province to serve as home base was brought in. 20-person teams from the SPS Public Safety Unit were organized to physically search for Candace, and the SPS Forensic Identification Unit was on hand to take samples and document evidence. The major crime section also had to convince the police service to say yes to all of this. Recognizing the importance and urgency of the situation, management approved the pitch almost immediately. So in those 15 days, we were able to coordinate multiple agencies, some from out of province, get resources we need, liaise and have our legal team work with this private company to establish what this looks like and um, put all these resources together for a location that we could search. So as a coordinator in that time, that sounds like a very fast um, period of time to do a ton of work. But on the other side of it being a missing person case, 15 days is a long time. Absolutely. The other thing to consider, right, is that as we're prepping for this, that investigation isn't stopping. At the same time, other major searches were underway. As you heard in the previous episode, the river and its banks were being scoured by the air support and public safety units. Working against the clock, there were no breaks for officers. Tyson recalls being very grateful for how organized and professional staff at the landfill were to work with. It only took the team a few hours to figure out the most efficient way to go about searching for that needle. So the, the operator would take his excavator, excavator move it down, and, and basically run a string of garbage 10 feet wide, 2 feet deep, for like 50 feet. So sort of just, spread it out. Yeah, well, in really it was just a row because it was only 10 feet across. So that allowed... What well, we realized, if we do that, then we can run the dog on either side and over, and it's not a big span. It was safer for the dog, it was safer for the handler. And then it was very easily to search that 10-foot wide portion, just walk 50 feet and search that, that strip, really. It was like a strip um, 
of garbage and it was only two feet high. So we could really do a good job and the dogs could have really good exposure to the contents of that garbage. Just so we can get a, a visual because a lot of people don't, again, visit a dump. What does this garbage look like that you're actually physically digging through? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess I'll reverse that on you is like, what did, what are we looking for? The search team was tasked with finding bicycles or bike parts as Candace was last seen with her cruiser bike. They were given very specific details on the clothing she was last seen wearing. Dr. Ernie Walker then explained to the team what finding a month-old body might be like in the early summer heat. At the end of the day, what they may find is remains of Candace and, and we have to, to also consider, you know, allow them the time to mentally prepare for what they're about to do because it's an incredibly hard job to start with in a location that's incredibly challenging. Lots to consider. Lots to consider. So yeah, we we had prepped them for what they may find. And, it, you know, it could be anything from, you know, um, body fat to coagulated blood to, or dried blood to um, they were given a description of different types of maggots that would, would as your body decomposes. So you may want, if you see an area where where maggots are, are coming from you, you know, that's going to be something that you're going to want to investigate further. So it's a lot more than just looking for a body. No, no. It's right down to a piece of uh, something, you know, a piece of blood, a piece of hair, Yeah. right? Anything. In three days, the team combed through 184,000 cubic feet of material. They located five bicycles, animal carcasses in various stages of decomposition, and plenty of maggots, but no Candace. Their efforts weren't for nothing. Tyson says the team did outstanding work, and when he had to face Candace's mom, Pauline, to deliver the news, he was proud to say with 100% confidence that Candace was not in the landfill, another lead that could be crossed off the list. Thankfully, the list of leads and incoming information in this case is not sparse. The next large-scale investigative approach Tyson faced happened six years later while heading up the missing person task force. Not much was consistent in Candace's life, but her social media activity definitely was. Her Facebook account became a treasure trove of information for investigators. What I came to see was that a lot of our suspect information, a lot of our the, the evidence we were using was coming from Candace's Facebook messenger. Um, that was one thing we were able to secure early on in the investigation. And... In doing so, it, it helped the investigation. It led us to a lot of leads, or if leads, if tips did come in, we were able to use that as to, you know, to gather gather evidence because she had a very, a very large library of conversations on her Facebook Messenger. And contacts. And contacts. And, con- and conversations going back years. Police came across one of those conversations when they were actually investigating someone else involved in a completely separate crime. And in that case, a warrant was written and his cell phone was seized. And uh, it's a thing called a Celebrate. It's a manufacturer. They did, it's a like out-of-the-box software that takes your phone and it breaks it into a report. Here's all your text messages. Here's your pictures. Here's your... It's a, it's a tool. The investigator, while he was debriefing me, said, yeah, and... Candace is one of his friends. I'm like, well, what do you mean? 
Well, there's a whole conversation with him and Candace on his cell phone. What Tyson was hearing was that Candace was linked to yet another person, and not just anyone, but a person involved with buying and selling drugs. She wasn't liked by by a, a lot of people. Um, being in the drug world. Being in the drug world, right? They, she had she had dabbled in dealing. She would shortchanged people. She had ripped some people off. Um, she was associated to, you know, high level drug dealers. And so she was in a in a dangerous world. She was living in, in a dangerous world. In which she had burned some bridges. In which she had burned some bridges. And that, that was clear in this this little cell phone conversation that I had. And she'd have been friends with this person for a long time. And knowing full well there's people in that in in that catalog of contacts and people that have had recent conversations at the time with Candace that we never no one came to us and said, Hey, I'm friends with her or I I spoke to her in the month leading up. Mm-hmm. Those people never came to us, right? We had an opportunity to um, look at that time frame, you know, from 2015, 2016, 2017, and to consider, is there someone else in her friend circle or fellow drug dealers or, you know, people that she hung out with in, in that community and that <clears throat> that that kind of dumpster diving, meth addicted world, and we're lawfully in possession of these conversations. What's stopping us to see if there's mention of, of her disappearance, potentially of her murder? Enter Project Searchlight. This aspect of the investigation is not as overt as searching a landfill, but in the shadows of the online world lies equal mass amounts of information for investigators to comb through. Members from the Saskatoon Police Service Tech Crimes Unit were called upon to see just how many of these seized devices and celebrate reports could lead to the suspect. They're able to come back to me and say, we have 74. Like, wow. 74 connected to Candace? 74 celebrate reports that have some sort of connection either to Candace, the meth world, you know, that uh, street community. With Tyson's promotion, he no longer has an active role in the investigation, but Project Searchlight is ongoing behind the scenes. Officers are data mining, listening to years-old conversations, viewing tens of thousands of pictures and videos, and decoding text messages that were never intended for anyone else to see, let alone cops. Thanks to the law, this could mean an evidence windfall for investigators. Staff Sergeant Doug McNeil shares the excited sentiment now that Candace's file is back on his desk. He's eager to get to work and finally find out who is responsible for the disappearance of Candace Singbeal. I'm glad you brought me back down here today because it's, you know, as I'm back in this section now and I'm, I'm getting more into this file with Aaron and as we, as we want to, you know, take this opportunity that you guys are giving us right now with the podcasts. To, to reach out to people again and yeah, this it's it brings that excitement back like the the excitement being you know we're gonna do this like let's do this coming up in episode five we've recapped what nearly nine years of an investigation encompasses a ton of work has been completed by extremely skilled officers so what more can be done 
According to Detective Sergeant Aaron Moser, the new lead investigator and final voice in our series, there is no such thing as a dead end, especially not in the search to find Candace. You know, there's that saying when one door closes, another door opens, and I would characterize the state of this investigation and uh, the course of the investigation kind of in that manner. We are going to resolve this case. That's next time on Deals, Debts, and Death. We've tried our best to visually describe in this episode what investigators were dealing with. A historic building in Saskatoon's downtown core filled with nooks and crannies, dingy back alleys, and an extensive search of a massive landfill. You can actually see these never-before-seen investigative photos with your own eyes by visiting our photo gallery at saskatoonpolice.ca slash podcast.